Welcome to the Trailbreaker Podcast. I'm Aaron Feinberg. In this podcast, I explore what it takes to be a trailbreaker through intimate conversations with people carving new paths across the landscape of business, art, and sport, we dig in on how to excel across seemingly disparate endeavors. What drives people who manage to succeed multidimensionally? Is it how they think? Is it meticulous planning and follow through? Or is it some measure of delusional optimism? My guest today is Matan Paul Shetrick, head of product for A-Team, a company where the world's top builders team up with growing companies in order to make better products faster. Prior to A-Team, Matan was at Brex, Flexport, Square, and Stripe. And when he's not at work, you can find him climbing or enjoying the outdoors with his wife and dog. We talked about how our best work happens when we're part of a team, what draws people to mission-based work, and the importance of making your intentions overt. Good afternoon, Matan, and thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's uh, great to catch up. I am excited to hear about this new project that you are a part of called A-Team. So why don't we start off by you sharing a little bit about what A-Team does. So A-Team is um, a marketplace for uh, talent. Um, And what we do is we help companies by bringing this talent to them to really drive innovation throughout the organization and in their product development cycle. Um, Yeah. So in essence, so the the a team is something that you place into a company or you work with a company to to then send them an a team to solve different issues or missions or problems exactly so think about it like you know back in the day um companies used to own let's say their servers and then aws came um we use a similar model which we call it uh, cloud teams the idea is you define a mission as a, as a client um, and then we tailor a high-functioning team with um, top talent from across the world to come in and tackle that. Um, and this is very different from the classic, I would say, agency or freelancer model, which is more of a, a mercenary-based engagement. Um, we see our, our builders, as we call them, more of like missionaries that come in and really drive change um, in your development cycle, but also within your org by seeing this new way of, um, of, of doing like technical work um, and building technology and products. That makes sense. I just wanted to get a little more clear on the distinction. You know, why do you call that uh, alternative approach a, a mercenary approach? Give me a little more understanding about why that is. Yeah, the classic model of a freelancer was, um, it's very, pro- it's like a project based. I need this done. Um, this is, you know, the SOW, let's say, this is the cost, this is the hours of allocation. And you come in and you go out, there's no attachment, there's no like, uh, it's not, it's not usually not longer term engagements. Um, so it's very sterile, almost like you come in and you go out. What we found with our model and, uh, and also the talent that we have, the builders, engagements tend to run between six to 18 months. So uh, they're fully embedded in the company. It's not that someone wrote a brief, threw it over the fence, and then whatever you get back, you get back and you don't know what you're getting going to have at the end of the process. They're fully embedded. They're working with your, um, with your, with with your 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 tech talent um, and and so on, 
Um, you know, some of our ATMs even present to the board in some companies. So like there, there's really no distinction from, a, I would say, quote unquote, benefit employee to an ATM that comes to work in your, in your, in your, in your organization. And the kind of work that these ATMs do, does it span, you know, engineering, product, marketing? Is it kind of all over depending on what the company needs? So today we mostly focus on um, on product work. So it would be either engineer, design, PMs, um, and sometimes growth marketers. Um, but in the future, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. W- once we show the model is working, there's no difference. For example, for a PMM to be part of that team, because like they also believe in the mission, or for a marketer, or from any, any like QA and other roles. Um, but we are very much at this point point in time focused on the on the technology product piece. Um, but uh, this is more of a decision of what's the entry point rather than like a, a longer term. This is the only thing we're going to do kind of thing. Thanks for that clarification. And, um, you know, when, when you think about what it takes to, to be an A-team member, you know, obviously there's, you know, high-performing teams have people who are very strong in their particular skill set. They're also strong in the ability to work with other people, and that that's kind of a multifaceted set of skills. So how do you guys, um, you know, source, support, uh, and sort of kind of keep your talent, um, you know, at the highest level? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So there's, there's a couple of layers to it. This is also what made me interested in, in what A-team is building, because it's not just a pure technology product. There's a very strong element of community here. Um, so first off, there's, there's a quote I really like by, by Steve Jobs, and I'm not going to read the whole quote, but the gist of it is, you know, uh, A players bring A players. Um, and that's, that's very true. So what we're seeing is by sourcing top talent and vetting top talent, two, two separate things happen. Like getting top talent into the network, um, we get top like amazing missions from amazing companies. And the more interesting those missions are, the more that in itself attracts more more top talent. But separately, A players like to work with A players, um, and they bring the, their own friends and family and coworkers that they've enjoyed working with in the past. Um, I, I do think that the way we're hiring today in general for companies is, is somewhat broken. Um, because we over-index on the individual uh, capabilities. And, but, but at the end of the day, none of us works in today's world as an individual. We are a part of a team that's supposed to, uh, and, and some of our best work it happens as part of that team and we put, when we push each other. Um, but when we hire you, we don't hire you with the mindset of like, huh, you are going, you're great as an individual, but are you actually a fit for that specific project or team? Um, and there's like that disconnect. And the reason we're doing that is because that atomic unit of the individual is actually much easier to screen and, and, and deal with. Um, so what we're essentially doing is, you know, we're starting from the atomic unit of the individual, which is these amazing, talented um, people. Um, and we screen them. We screen them because they're engineers or PM or designers. We screen them on their respective technical skills and needs, but we also screen them for personality traits we screen them for um, uh, communications as well as other soft skills. Um, and then we have proprietary technology that basically says, given that those skills and the need by specific clients, what is the best performing team we can supply uh, at this uh, specific time? Um, as you can imagine, some of the people on the network um, 
work on a team full time some of them um do let's say only 20 10 30 40 whatever hours a week availability some of them have a full-time job in some of the tech giants out there and they also do this as a side hustle so it really depends and and the, all of these factors come into play um into this i would call this black box and then we spit out a team with a few bench players that you can choose to um choose to uh, supplement with uh, but at the end of the day, you know, and then we give that proposal to the client and the client would say, I actually, you know what, your proposal is good. And that's like, that goes smoothly. Or they can say, well, I actually don't like Matan. I want to switch him with Aaron. Uh, and that's fine. So that's why we have quote unquote, those like uh, other options or bench players that they can then rotate and say, well, I spoke to Matan and, you know, I don't, you know, I decided that this is not going to work. There's a culture fit problem. Then let's go with Aaron because he's a much nicer person. Um, but that's really, and then once the team is deployed and they're fully embedded into the company, uh, we provide tooling for, for the client or the company in this case to see um, how the mission is running, things like team polls that comes out every two weeks and all the builders review each other. So this way we get data on are the pairings working? Do people, uh, how's the health of that team? As well as review the client, meaning maybe the client is not the greatest client, but also the client reviews the team. So we get that, um, you know, that actual pulse on how things are going. Um, and we can feed that back into our model and say, well, you know, maybe Matan and Aaron as a pair is not the best pair or, or they're actually rock stars together. And that, that continues to the next engagements and the next engagements as, as, as the network builds itself. So um, this is kind of like how um, this, this engagement model works and how we have that continuous feedback loop that comes with it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that you would want to track all those different metrics on how successful the team is being at, at solving the mission, um, working together. One thing that I also thought of as you were talking is, is also how successful is the A-team uh, at integrating with the, the company in which they're now working. Uh, you know, obviously there's so many, so many missions that involve cross-functional partnerships that would be with people that are, that are benefited employees, you know, at these companies. Is that something that you guys also measure or you ask the client to sort of give you pulse on? Yeah. So, so two things on that, I think, um, first off, as part of the general client reviewing the team, the assumption that Matan and Aaron, let's say we're a team, um, if we haven't worked well with the marketing department, this will be baked into that feedback that comes in. Um, but funny enough, I think, you know, due to um, recent event, specifically COVID, the concept of who's like, because we're not all in the same office, we're not all wearing um, color-coded badges. It's actually very hard for an individual to know who's a quote unquote benefited employee versus not. Um, and that distinction becomes even more extreme um, if you start looking at places outside the US where the idea of a healthcare insurance doesn't really exist like through an employer. So the only difference is really your stock, your stock benefits. But there's nowhere that is written into law that a contractor or a freelancer, sorry, cannot have equity. So really there's no real difference. Like we, we've constructed this idea 
that is a notion that's based on like giving you healthcare or not. But it's but it's like it's a construct that we've built to into ourselves. And what happened with COVID is because people work remotely, we're not in the office. The tolerance of the sorry, the fear of companies from this idea of freelancers has been removed because a there's a constraint of talent. They can't get enough talent through the door. They have the capital, but they can't deploy fast enough, and they can't hire. B, like at this point, if an employee is sitting at home, whether they're equity or not, like you have the same concern, which is are they actually doing the work? So, what's driving these companies is a hunger for talent, and. A lot of this talent also found out during COVID that they're like, well, I don't want to work this hard. I don't want to work like 80 hours a week for the same company. I want to work. I, I actually, what gets me, go, you know, waking up and going to sleep gets me excited is, is mission-based work and working with smart and amazing people. So there's this interesting like um, um, confluence here of like in, of the incentives on both sides of the marketplace, which is like builders want to work on interesting stuff, on challenging stuff. And companies can't hire fast enough. And if they don't have to pay healthcare, especially in the US, then great. Um, and you know, that's essentially what's what's what what is happening here. So there's also a maturity of organization. And, and for example, people ask me how many employees are in ATIM, and I don't even know how to answer that question because we a we use our own product uh, to build the product. But like I haven't, as a hiring manager, don't always know, and as part of the executive team, who has been, who has benefits, who doesn't, who has equity, who doesn't. It doesn't really matter. But on the other hand, I can tell you for a fact that if I see amazing people on the network that work for us and do amazing jobs, we should totally compensate them with equity, even though they're not like quote unquote full time employees. Um, so I, I think it's just like an antiquated concept of like the labor market more than anything. That's really, really interesting. And, um, you know, when you talked about folks wanting to work on mission-driven things, it, it also got me thinking, I, I, and I think I understand what you said at the beginning where you're using the word mission for synonymous with projects, right? Um, but then when you said, you know, people want to work on mission-driven things, I was thinking about, you know, companies that are rooted in a, in a mission-driven uh, approach. So mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, the Patagonias of the world or some other company or a nonprofit, et cetera. So uh, are you also using that word to in mission in, in that way too, or is it really just um, mission equals projects or, or, or a, a designated work scope? No, no, it's, it's definitely both of those. So mission is much more of a, it's a much, broader concept in a project. Um, and, and also to, to something I mentioned earlier, and it was probably not clear, my fault, uh, which is um, we vet both sides of the marketplace. So for example, if we don't believe that your mission as a company would be exciting for our builders, we will tell you, you are not a good fit. And exciting is not just on the pay, exciting is on the challenge. So um, because again, the the builders are our most valuable parts of this 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 product, um, and if if the missions we 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 give them access to are not exciting to them, they'll go elsewhere. Um, so the cater the we we cater kind of like we curate sorry both sides of the marketplace here, both to make sure that we have the best talent in the world, but also that we have the most exciting companies and the missions of those companies and, and to get even more granular than that the fact that a company 
has published a successful mission with us does not mean that when they come again and we want to publish a mission, we will accept that mission. Because it could be that they come in and they have an amazing mission, it's very successful, and then they want to spin up another mission or another team that will tackle, I don't know, um, building a cafeteria in the building. And we're like, well, this is not relevant because our engineers are not like, you know, they're, they're software engineers, they're not like civil engineers. And we'll tell them that. It's like, this is a not relevant mission. I'm sorry, you, there's better services to go to that. And we'll send them to those services. Um, but this is actually a really critical component because the goal here is to really cater for that for the builder community. And that really means continuously maintaining the top talent and also making sure that that talent is engaged by bringing the best and most exciting uh, and most challenging missions out there. So fascinating. Thank you for all that. And, and right now, you know, as you mentioned, the last couple of years, the world of work has really been spun uh, in, in, in many ways to some really great benefits, uh, you know, from folks being able to work from home, uh, from being able to, to be a little bit more choosy on what they take on to sort of reconsider how they're designing their life in. And I think ultimately we're all going to benefit if we haven't already where you have sourced your talent, you know, you made a, a strong point around, you know, the, the great people always hang around with the great people. And I think that that, that is universal. And the fact that we are so global these days, are you finding that you're, you're grabbing talent from particular regions more than others, or is it really kind of spread out all over the world? No, that, that's a great question. So we are, the main three regions that we are also predominantly concentrated of talent would be the US, the EU, and Israel. Israel is natural because um, the two founders are from Israel uh, and also me. And so there's like, there's, there's a bit of an affinity and, and access to talent there. Um, but, uh, but then um, Europe and the US is a combination of, uh, actually it's a combination mostly focused on not just technical skills, but also uh, language barriers and language skills. This is not to say that we don't have people from outside those areas, but um, but what we have found is that there's some you know some constraints that are like outside of like the pure talent. So for example, um, we have people in Australia, but unfortunately today I would say most of our clients are also based, let's say, the U.S., Europe, and Israel. So if that is the case, it's actually quite hard to work with uh, a talented individual in Australia because of time zone differences. Um, as we grow the network, and let's say we have more projects that are based, let's say, in Oceania or Asia, that will probably also help us with the coverage there. Similarly, um, we've seen some difficulties sometimes with talent, let's say, in, in certain countries in Asia, not because they're not technically uh, capable, but there's like a bit of difficulties around um, language barriers. Um, so we are actually spending some time thinking, uh, both expanding the network on the client side for interesting challenges for, for those talents, but also thinking what tooling can we build um, for these individuals um, to either bridge that gap of communication or verbal communication skills and or help them grow uh, as, as professionals so they so they can join the network and, and get those missions because we do think that technically wise especially in engineering they're actually phenomenal engineers um, 
but then there's also an element of, of education also to the client. Uh, in a world where the idea of you know uh, water cooler talks is not as prevalent anymore, um, doesn't matter if someone like like what the when you say communication skills, what are those skills that you actually care about? Is it as an engineer that I can write a clear and succinct uh, uh, product? Uh, sorry, um, review or like GitHub GitHub comments on your code. So if that's the case, it doesn't matter if, if the person has, a, uh, let's say, a heavy accent or they're not as articulate verbally as long as they're articulate um, in writing. But then um, better writing is not necessarily something that is actually, there's, there's software that can help with that. So I think what we're trying to think about is how to do that and how to help those individuals. And by doing that, we also expand the talent we have. And by doing that, we can capture more missions. So there is a self-fulfilling element to it. Uh, but it's not an easy problem to be to be to be to be to be clear. It sounds like it, and and you know I want to I want to shift us away for a second from a team and and on your path because I think you know as a man who was born and raised in Israel and has been in the states for for how long? Um, close, a bit over ten years, almost yeah, almost eleven years now. And and so. I'd love to hear a little bit about what your path has been like, whether it's on the cultural side or the communication side or the integration into, uh, you know, new working systems or et cetera. So, so anything that you would feel comfortable sharing around, you know, uh, how that path has been lessons learned, uh, you know, struggles, obstacles, you've kind of overcome, you can kind of take it wherever you want. Um, but, um, no, we'd love sure. to hear. For sure. So, I mean, I think, especially as a product manager, um, definitely communications, especially written communications, well, depending on the company, but let's say written communication is extremely important. Um, and to be fully transparent, when I moved from Israel, that was non-existent, meaning I knew how to write and read English, obviously, and definitely speak English uh, somewhat better than I speak Hebrew in, in some cases. But the written piece was was a bit was a bit lacking to say the least, and I definitely had to spend a lot of time, um, thanks to my wife mainly who forced me to spend that time, um, to to go uh, and and pick up those skills. Now I think you know in Israel, um, writ the written word, at least in the, in the environments I've worked in, um, was important, but not as I would say as as important as it is um, uh, in, in the US war culture. And it, it was, a, for me, it was, it was not an easy path to, to, um, to pick it up. And it's definitely still an ongoing, an ongoing uh, learning experience. I think one of the things that became very, very clear to me though, and I don't know if it's unique to Israel or, or, also, or also true for the States is that, um, so first off, writing in general is, is a skill that needs to be learned. And I definitely did not learn that in, in, in school. Um, not just like because I skipped classes, but like I think there's just not a structured way of learning it. And then business writing is definitely a skill that you don't learn in school, um, which is a completely different writing than, than let's say, um, than let's say, um, you know, just like creative writing. Um, but, but to, you know, to, to, to like, to double down on that, like it, it turned into this really weird um, thing where I think the company that 
kind of like matured me the most in that is that during the time I was at, at Square and Square um, really doubled down because of the some of the executives that came from Amazon on the, the idea of a written culture uh, on like the six page memos and, and so on and so forth. And then once I left Square and I joined a, a couple of companies after, um, I, I went from the person that like, God damn it, I need to write a memo to like, this is the way we should communicate around the company. So when I joined Flexport, I brought with me like, you know, patterns of like um, things that I've seen at work at Square. And then when I joined Brex, um, you know, this is not to say that I've, I've led that change. Definitely not. This was all, a lot of it, not a lot of it, all of it was Pedro, the founder, but like the written culture became very clear that this is like an important thing. And, and as one of the early PMs, um, I was a, a big fan of that. And, and like, whether it's through specs or through memos and, and so on. So I think um, I, I went from one extreme to like the other, which is like, and it's probably also not the, the right balance to be very clear. Um, but in a world like we live today, it actually becomes even more crucial because a lot of the work happens in an asynchronous environment. So um, you can't just jump on a call because a call is, is fine, but then there's all these other stakeholders that are either left out of the loop or they just physically cannot, like they can't keep up and, and they're not aware of decisions that are made. So this idea that we can go back to um, how we run business is just naive and, and will not scale. So companies and, and individuals also, they wanna be successful in this, in a generally in a global world, but also in an asynchronous world, like, like the, the idea that you can do this without working on your writing skills is, is, is very naive and, and you will fail. Um, and I say this as someone who has failed in the early days moving to the States. Well, I laugh because, you know, as someone who can write, I, I have absolutely been guilty and many people would attest to this of being the guy that will pick up the phone and call you or leave you a voice memo because it, for me, and while it's selfish and behind the times, uh, because as you clearly articulated, asynchronous communication is, is, is kind of the way and it needs to, it's far more efficient at times. Um, you know, me just getting on the phone and talking to you about something while it's enjoyable. And I feel like it's a great way to connect, uh, is not as efficient as doing what I should be doing, which is spending a little more time, uh, writing thoughts out, um, and, and, uh, getting those messages out to people in a, in a broader way. So I, I might have to follow the Matan way. <laughs> well, I mean, to be very clear, and I do enjoy when you call me out of the blue, because like, I, I think it's also a question of, of context, right? Yeah. So, um, like I would not want to do a coaching session on Slack or, or on like, or on, um, sending each other letters or emails. Uh, but I do think that if you're proposing, let's say a product suggestion or, or a business plan change, taking the time to put your thoughts in writing, even if you don't end up sharing the memo, it actually is also to your benefit because it's actually very easy to bullshit a presentation. It is much harder to bullshit through an argument that is written because people can see it and they can call it out as it is. It's like, wait, this, what is this logical leap where you show a graph and like, okay, you can fudge the numbers, you can play with like, you know, sizing and fonts and whatever, but it's actually much, much harder to, um, to bullshit your way through a written argument because people would definitely catch it. So it forces you to also be more diligent. And um, it brings me up, it brings 
the thought to me about hearing from you a little bit about the differences between culture in the U.S. versus culture in Israel, you know, whether that's the way that people communicate and having coached a variety of, of folks from Israel, uh, it's, uh, it's always clear to me in terms of, um, you know, obviously people from particular areas um, look and feel similarly, even though they're individuals and they have your, their uniqueness. But what would you say are the, the differences as you see them or as you've experienced them between the two places and how it is to work in both spots? Yeah, so I think um, we, so I can honestly talk about myself and like, I think we talked about this um, a few times how I've actually made a conscious decision for the last 10 years to avoid working with Israelis. And I ended up now working with two Israeli founders um, who, who I know from back in the day, but for me, I think some of the things that are, I would say, quote unquote, um, prototypical for Israelis. And now by the way, working with Israelis, I see that that's like a gross exaggeration because as you said, individual or individuals at the end of the day. But I definitely think um, candor is one of them to default, meaning um, we're very direct um, and we don't beat around the bush. And part of the problem with that is that sometimes depending on the person on the other side and how they receive it, um, it could be very hurtful. Um, and I think for me, at least, some of the journey, and again, <laughs> in no way, shape or form, at the end of this journey uh, of working in the States is, is also seeing how to take, and, and a lot of the work I've done with you also, Aaron, is how to take that, um, that message, which may or may not be correct, um, but then like massaging it in a way that the recipient would not feel like they're being attacked but rather understand that this is coming from a place that you actually care and extremely passionate about uh, the work. Um, and this is especially important on first impression. I do think um, that over time as people learn to work or, or have worked with me or with others like that have similar traits, they've learned that this is coming from a place not of like um, attacking for the sake of attacking, but more like, communicating and, and just being extremely passionate about things. Even today, when we started, we were, uh, you know, you and I were uh, configuring the microphone. You were like, show me Matan with the passion so I can see if you're not blowing out the microphone. And I think, and I think like it takes time to, to figure this out. But once you do, um, there's a click in people's head. Now, I don't think the responsibility should be for people to get the click in their head. So a lot of that work and a lot of the time I spent um, is on how to tone myself down while still maintaining that same message. Um, and as you can, as you know, on, from our relationship, Aaron, it wasn't always successful. Um, but but that's one thing. And I think the other, and this was difficult for me, at least in the earlier days, but still is, um, the opposite, which is that lack of directness could create um, a, a feeling of thrash um, because especially as you report to someone or, or you get your manager to ask you for something, if it's not very like clear and succinct, you're like, you, you feel like you're running around in circles versus like, okay, so what is it that you actually need for me? Like, just let's spell it out. And it's fine if you don't know, but then let's work together on figuring that out rather than like dancing around the topic. Um, 
because I think also, at least from the Israelis I work with now and I've worked in the past, we're very open to feedback. But if you don't tell me the direct feedback, we will struggle in understanding what you're saying. <clears throat> One second. <clears throat> Choking on my tea. Hold on. <clears throat> yeah, I think that <clears throat> that's that's really well said. And I think that, you know, the candor, the the directness, the willingness to share, you know, how one feels at the emotional level, the values level, um, you know, the assertiveness that I think is so a part of Israeli culture, those are very strong characteristics that, that I think many people could learn to tap into. And I think that, you know, on the flip side, as you mentioned, you know, communication is a two-way street. So, you know, whether one person has to dial it down or up, the other person does actually have to work on their side of it too and, and, and reflect back and, you know, to themselves and go, hmm, you know, am I being reactive? Am I projecting? Am I, am I, you know, owning my stuff? And could I be, you know, more transparent, more direct, more clear? Am I going around in circles? So, so I think it's, it's, you know, at the end of it, it's intention. And I think when people make their intentions clear, when they make their process overt, when they really tell people, you know, what they're doing, why they're doing it, it makes that moving past those initial uh, friction points a little a little easier and and getting to that spot of okay we still are all human here we just we we can really work well together if we can get through these initial feel outs and and realize um, how complementary we actually can be no for sure I think um, one of the things that is actually thanks to you um, we did one of those like I think uh, was it insights or one of those like uh, evaluation and yeah insights I started scary. just sending it to people I was like, here, read this. This what this is what works and what gets me ticking versus not. And I think it does a better job articulating that than I could ever do. Um, and it also, to your point, frames the conversation or the relationship as well as the intentions and it gives context to like what's kind of happening in the backstage or the back of the mind or where people are coming from. And as well as your strengths and weaknesses. So the people are aware, oh, this is nothing, something maybe not as good versus uh, that they can do or versus not. And I think it actually goes, goes uh, uh, really goes a long way in, um, in, in kind of like re minimizing that initial like dance, I would say. Yeah, it gets people away from pathologizing and diagnosing either themselves or anyone else and realize it gives you language to to both describe yourself more clearly and also to, to have others, you know, understand you. And I think when you get people communicating at that level, you know, it's the whole reason those trainings are so fun in, in getting the whole group together and doing them is because pretty quickly you're watching how folks who have had friction or who have always seemed to be out of step, you know, through a couple hours of reading each other's reports and talking things through, you wind up with a whole different appreciation. So uh, I'm glad it was useful for you. Oh, no, for sure. And I think there's an example that we both know that I had some struggles with uh, an individual and he definitely had some struggles with me. And we shared the reports with each other. And this goes back to like building quality teams. We actually really like each other on a personal level, but we had some struggle on, on a working level. And we then both read those and we, and we spent a lot of time explaining to each other what we need and that did not go as, as clearly through. Um, and then we both read those reports and I think within the week or two, 
there was like a 180 in the relationship and it became from a source of drain to a source of like a flourishing because there was a clear understanding where uh, each side is coming to the table from and each side accommodated the strengths and the weaknesses and supplemented them um, in a way that it was like, it, it, you know, if, if you, we were, let's say two, let's say capable individuals, prior to this, the relationship was not the sum of the individual. It was actually, we were negating each other. So it was like less than the sum. And after that, it was like a superset of like, um, like, a, like a force multiplier. And I think that's also what's magical about high functioning teams, because um, once, when you are in a high functioning team, you definitely know the feeling. And, you know, it's like, you're in the zone, everything is gliding, execution is working, um, and so on. And I think um, that was like an eye-opening experience. Not to say that I didn't have it before, whether it's like in, in a professional environment, in the military or, or whatever, but um, it was eye-opening because to me, historically, um, I would be like, well, I can't work with this person. Where this was a great example where actually you can, and there's an understanding and, and like context that needs to happen. But once you have that, like there's a click that happens and we took a relationship that in theory you could have maybe in the past would have said this is not working to a relationship that you know we've achieved a lot together uh and it's not that i did anything great it's actually like both sides had to step in and like you know give territory and give away some of their ego but also um, work really really hard together and 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 and, and see where those like boundaries are and that made it very clear to me that um, there's obviously character traits that are more aligned with others, uh, but that does not mean that you can't like, there aren't things if both sides are willing or multiple sides are willing that you can uh, adapt and like create those like high functioning teams. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned something earlier and I don't want you to give up any of a team secrets, but when you talked about sort of this proprietary tools or assessments uh, that you're using to, to vet people. And, you know, I'd imagine it's, it's probably multimodal from their technical chops to their interpersonal, their personality uh, communication. Um, does it, does it in fact include all those things uh, or, or are you guys, um, you know, looking at other factors? Yeah. So it includes a lot of these things. There's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, I think the technical side is actually not the, I'll say, quote unquote, the hard problem. It's the soft skills. And again, it really depends on the role. So you can imagine as a PM, um, if I'm a bad communicator, that's, that's a more of a problem than if, let's say, I'm an engineer, just as an example. Not that it's not a problem, but like there's, and what does it mean to have technical skills as a PM? Like, what, what's your technical skills? Google Docs. So, like, you know, but joking aside, like, I, I think, um, each one of these roles, and it's not just a role, it's a role and also, let's say, a specific mission or an industry of a company. So um, another element could be, you know, you can be the best PM in the world in health tech, but now there's a mission in fintech. Are you even a relevant candidate? Not because you, I don't think you can do a good job, which you probably can, but there's like a learning curve. And it could be very frustrating for the team if they like they're here to work and execute and now like, like or the employer in this case, or the, the company, sorry, to go ahead and then like teach you about the, the, the ins and outs of like, what does it mean to like, I don't know, credit card process. 
So there's an element of that as well. And all of these things come into play. And, and, and again, like everything in life, we, we keep on tweaking and refining them as, as we learn. Um, but, you know, some other stuff, for example, is like time zones, you know, um, some, in, some clients really dearly care that the teams are in the same time zones as their full-time employees, some don't. Some use the A-team as a critical project within the organization. Some say, hey, let's bring this A-team to spike on something that's a completely like, you know, out of left field here, completely innovative, does not have indirect communication or contact, sorry, with the core product. Uh, so, so it really depends. Uh, and there's, there's no like one size, like there's no like silver bullet like here. Um, it's, but like every probabilistic model, um, there, there's that, there's the suggestion that we see at least at this point on the team. And then we might tweak at the edges to um, uh, based on like uh, stuff that let's say we heard from the client and wasn't as well captured yet and, and so on. So a lot of our work is how can we take all this information that we get from clients and digitize it so we can do smarter things with it, but also how can we take um, uh, information about you as a builder um, and on one hand digitize and crunch it, but on the other, we don't want to lose that essence of a human because like they're not just numbers, right? So there is an element of human judgment by us saying, well, maybe Aaron and Matan will not be the best pair together given, you know, certain like things that we've seen about them in the past, or maybe they will be, or maybe the, like, and, and we can override those models uh, based, based on that human judgment because Again, I want to be very clear, if building teams was easy, we wouldn't be here as a company. Like we would all be doing that. Um, I actually think the place that we see that is probably done as the best jobs is actually not in, 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 in corporate America or corporate at all, it's in sports. I think if there is a place that we see that team building is done and done well is, is, in, is, in, is, in, is in professional sports. Uh, not doesn't have to be professional sport, but, but in in, in, uh, in sports, because the the concept of a unit and a team is so strong there uh, in team sports. Uh, yeah, you might have the superstars, but like like a superstar can only go so far with when you have eighty games a season and another like whatever games in the playoffs, or if it's baseball even more or football less. Um, but like the goal, the idea here is like that. that Yes, there's a star, but they're part of the team. And how does that team work together? What's the dynamic? What is the result? And I think there's been a lot of research done on what does it mean to run like a professional sports team, uh, much more than probably has been done uh, or has been tried to implement in, in the corporate world. And there's a lot of learning to be taken from there. Yeah, you keep uh, reminding me of the Tuckman model, and maybe you guys have come across it, where, where it's how teams progress from forming to storming to norming and then hopefully performing and, yeah. and not every team ever gets to that high performing team. And it's, it's really great. It sounds like, you know, you guys as, as the A team are in, you know, in the business of, of helping teams to actually get that performing team right out of the gate. Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely part of it. I think the other interesting thing that, um, we're also seeing is how can we, because realistically you don't, well, it depends on the model of engagement, but a lot of times a company does not say, 
um, here's a problem, put an A team on it and we're forgetting about it. There's, a, there's like a sponsor, whether it's an executive sponsor, or let's say a PM or a technical lead or, an or, a, or a designer from the company. That it's not just about the complexity, it's not about how I bring a unit that works well together, it's also how does that unit then work together with, with, with the individual from the org? Um, so in, in theory, there's like really interesting opportunities here, which is as, as we learn and grow and develop, how do we take this model and not just bring um, like A players from externally, but also how do we help your own organization to evolve and use your own A players or your own relevant players, because I assume everyone you hire is an A player um, to put them on those missions. And then we can maybe supplement with external, um, um, let's call it external player. So this really starts becoming almost like you have an internal draft versus an external draft. And like, and I actually do believe that um, like the sport analogy works really well here because, um, you know, teams, sport teams restructure their, their organizations every year. And the cost of not doing it well is actually very, very high. Like, now, obviously some of them fail, but uh, a lot of them fail, but there's a lot to learn from how they do that. And I'm not just talking about scouting, I'm talking about like running an organization, the front office versus back office, uh, the incentive structures and so on. So there's a lot, a lot to be learned from, from high functioning athletics teams. So you may not know this Maton, but uh, as a high school student, I played, my twin brother and I played on a, a very high powered soccer team, one that was number one in the country a couple of times. And what's interesting is, is we were one of the last of the high performing teams of, of that era. We had been on the receiving end of about 10 years of really amazing players and coaching that had brought up this organization uh, to be so in the spotlight. And we had guys that went on to the Olympics or the national team, but our, our year, we were just this core group of, of, players that had been playing since we were six years old together. And we had some guys that were a little bit better than others, but overall we were just this really high powered team. And the phrase our coach would always say year after year, and he says, we don't rebuild, we reload. Mm -hmm. and, and I always thought that was a really fascinating approach, you know, to just, you know, we just going to keep plunking the new talent in from, you know, he would see the, see the kids as they were 12, 13, 14. So by the time they were at the high school level and he had them at 16, 17, 18, he knew exactly who he was getting and where they were going to be. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you also see it. Um, so, so you also see it in the military, by the way, um, through like whether it's special ops or other, other specific units that they have their own uh, vetting processes, but you know, the good and the bad of these like entities is they have a long lead time. So, you know, if you look, if you think of, I don't know, like special op units, there's like a two year course and they can kick you out at any given point in time based on certain like characteristics or behaviors or patterns that they've identified. Similar to a soccer team that there's a lead time of let's say four five, six years. Um, and they're like, well, you might not be a good fit to the team even though you're talented, for example. And I think, um, I think the question here is, and in, in the world of like athletics, I told, and even, even military makes complete sense, but in the world of uh, the high, fast moving world of, of like business, how can we condense that um, and, and allow you and your organization to basically um, bring the most highly caliber um, 
execution machines that are also passionate about your problem and really help you supercharge supercharge your organization. I think that is a great place for us to stop. And um, and I want to kind of leave everybody with this. If, if I'm a company or if I'm an individual builder, how do I find you and, and have a deeper discussion about whether we're a good fit to be working together? Yeah, that's, so A, you can email me directly. Um, this is like only for Aaron's friends. So I'm allowing that. Uh, so my name is, as Aaron said, Matan, and my email is matan at a.team. Um, but also you can just go on our website, which is a.team and, and check it out. Um, as I mentioned, the marketplace is, is an invite only um, right now, and we'll probably stay that way. But you can still like, quote unquote, apply and there's a wait list, but if you shoot me an email, I can help you, uh, I can help you cut the line in, a, in an Israeli manner. We don't believe in standing in line, so. <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, Matan, it was so great to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your candor, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Same to you. Thank you again, Aaron. As always, a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye. The Trailbreaker Podcast is created by Aaron Feinberg with production support provided by Michael Mori. More interviews and videos can be found at AaronFeinberg.com.